She and her husband were both hardened criminals. Mary Kay was arrested, locked up in an Alabama jail. There she found a Bible placed by the Gideons. She shoved it under her mattress, and one day Mary Kay took out that Bible and began reading. She was drawn to a verse in Ezekiel chapter 36. It says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Quietly on the floor that night, Mary Kay surrendered her life to the Lord. Mary Kay felt the problems of other prisoners, particularly their loneliness. And today she is blessed that God used her to begin the Angel Tree Ministry, helping prisoners and their family draw closer together. I am sure many of you are familiar with the prison fellowship program and have participated in that program. The Gideons International receives incredible and inspiring testimonies like this on a regular basis. And that is why we serve in this unique ministry, to see a life turned to Christ after reading a Bible or a New Testament. For many, year, many years, or for many of you, uh, when you hear the name Gideons, you think about the Bibles containing the Gideon name, which you regularly see in hotels. And these have certainly been an important and highly recognizable part of our ministry over the past 120 years. However, the Gideons is much more than that. Who are we? Well, the Gideons are made up of over 157,000 business and professional men and over 97,000 ladies in the Gideons Auxiliary worldwide. We are born-again believers. We belong to a local church. And the goal of the Gideon ministry is to see men and women, boys and girls, come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and we are promised in Isaiah 55:11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In the past year, Gideons have distributed over 8.5 million Bibles in the United States and over 56 million worldwide. And since the Gideon ministry started over 120 years ago, we have placed over 2.5 billion Bibles or scriptures. We have camps in 199 countries. We distribute God's word in 109 different languages. We distribute Bibles to hotels and motels, hospitals, convalescent homes, and we distribute the New Testament to high school and college students as well as prisoners, police, fire, medical, and military personnel. Together we share more than one million copies of God's word every seven days in hotels, schools, hospitals, prisons, and more. For decades, the Gideons distributed testaments to fifth graders. When we were no longer allowed to go into the school classroom, we stood on the sidewalk with which is a public area. Now many schools have their own private campuses and we no longer are able to access the schools. And as a result of that, the Life Book was born. The Life Book is based on the Gospel of Mark or John and has an interactive format which draws the interest of the student. The program allows Christian students to share the Gospel with their friends and other students. The program can be used by the church's youth pastor 
who can order as many as needed at no cost to the church. The Gideon Bible Program. If you would like to help distribute scriptures, you can do it through the Gideon Bible Program. Gideon cards are Christian greeting cards that enable you to honor a friend or a loved one while also providing for someone to receive God's word. The cards are free, and a donation of $5 per Bible uh, to the Gideons will place a Bible for you. And you can do this by uh, going to the sendtheword.org for more information. The Women's Auxiliary does distributions in hospitals and nursing homes and doctors and dental offices. Ruth Hedstrom wrote, I was distributing testaments to a hospital staff when I saw an elderly woman mopping the floor. When I asked if she wanted a free Gideon testament, she said yes and put down her mop, wiped her hands carefully before accepting it. She asked, who paid for the Bible since they are free? And I told her that they were provided by donations to the Gideons. After a few moments, she said, I don't like to take charity, so I would like to make a donation. She pulled out a raggedy old coin purse from her apron, uh, opened it, removed 34 cents, which she placed in my outstretched hand. Can you spare this, I asked. And she replied, oh, yes, it's all I have, but we get paid tomorrow, so I won't need it. It was all she had, but she gave freely. How many of us give of what we have as freely as she did? So many blessings come on our come our way as we go to nursing homes and hospitals distributing God's word. The daily costs of the Gideons International are covered by the members themselves through our dues and donations to the Barnabas Fund. And that means that your total gift to the Gideon Ministry goes to covering the cost of putting scriptures into the hands of those who need to hear God's word. As Gideons, we visit the churches like I am doing today to share with you how God is using the Gideon ministry and has been for over 120 years. And we partner with believers like you and through the local churches and sharing the good news around the world. For an investment of about $1.56, you can provide for the purchase and placement of scriptures throughout the world. This includes all the costs of getting a scripture into the hands of someone who needs it. Tonight, uh, you will have an opportunity to share in this ministry by uh, giving an offering. And for those of you who have received the uh, pass out, uh, you can use the envelope on your handout to send a check. You can tear off the slip uh, to use a credit card. There's a QR code on the back which will take you directly to the Gideons to uh, place a donation for the for Bibles. During the pandemic, Mary Lou Barrett shared how exciting it was to distribute God's word on the Virginia Tech campus. Gideon's and Zillary were stationed outside Lavery Hall, that, which held classrooms and several dining areas. Students were required to wear a mask inside the building, yet many arrived without one. So the Gideon's and Zillary were able to obtain a supply of masks from one of the workers in the dining hall. As students approached the building, members, of, members offered a mask to each student along with a testament and a challenge to read the back two pages of the testament. Thomas was one of those students who didn't have a mask. Mary told him, in exchange for this mask, how about you promise to read the back, of those, back two pages of this testament before you go to bed tonight? He was very agreeable. 
They had a few minutes, so they began reading through these scriptures inside the back cover. Moved by what he was reading, Thomas came back after class. Not only did he stop again, but he accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior as a result. Another young man who had received the mass and a challenge returned after his class. He said, I want you to know I already read the back two pages. This young man was congratulated and asked if he had surrendered his life to Christ. He said that he had not because he was a Buddhist. The team encouraged him to continue to read, starting with the book of John, continuing to pray, continuing and praying for these students as they received these testaments. The Gideons and Auxiliary are active in prison ministry, and here in in Xenia, uh, we have several members of our camp who go on a regular basis to a local jail where they hold Bible studies and share with the prisoners on a regular basis. And if, if you would be interested in being part of the Gideons, there's a, a program called Friends of Gideons. And the Friends of Gideons is a way that none members can play a vital part in the Gideons International as prayer partners and if you would choose as a financial partner. And if you are interested in this, uh, you could go to uh, gideons.org slash friends. I also might uh, recommend to you the Gideon app program. Uh, this is an a app for the smartphone. It's free, and you can download it from iTunes or Google Play Store. You can read the text or listen to audio. You can choose from various translations, and you can read or listen to the Bible in 2,068 different languages. You can search a word, and you can look for the helps. And it's very interesting if you have some who, someone who doesn't speak English, you can find a passage and go to the Bible app, and it will read that, that part of the scripture to them in their language. Well, we need help. And we need help to continue to reach others for Christ. First, would you pray that we would have a steady flow of income so we can purchase more scriptures? Second, if you would pray that more men and their wives would join the Gideons International and help meet the growing need for distributing God's word. And if any of you men here feel that the Lord is calling you to a ministry like this, uh, please see me or get in contact with the Gideons. And finally, pray for those adults and children who receive God's word today that they will not only open the scriptures, but they would accept in their hearts Jesus Christ. Thank you, Pastor, for the time to share with you. and Thank you, congregation, for uh, listening to the Gideons. And we appreciate your contributions. Well, good. I'm excited about that. We uh, we had a uh, young man. I think I said something about it this morning, but it's been a number of years ago now. We had a young man who was part of this uh, uh, fellowship, um, and he was a college student. And um, he uh, went to Miami University, 
And while he was on the Miami University campus, he was an unbeliever, and he did what unbelieving young men do, uh, party a lot and all that kind of stuff. And he was uh, coming back from class, and there was a Gideon out uh, on the sidewalk, and he handed him a New Testament. He went back to the, his dorm, as he told me, and uh, opened the book of Romans and read and uh, got convicted that he was in a whole lot of trouble. And so uh, immediately repented, converted, uh, transferred to uh, Cedarville University. Some of you old-timers might remember him. Uh, and uh, uh, he wanted to get a Christian education. He was a musician, played a musical instrument very well, and um, used that musical ability to pay off uh, uh, his debt at Miami University, used it to pay off his debt at Cedarville University. Then he enlisted in the Army. And um, uh, he was a trumpet player, so whatever the drum and bugle corps, whatever the group uh, that, is a part, uh, that he was a part of, and he used that to pay off the remainder of his undergraduate degree. And then um, uh, used the money from the GI Bill to go to divinity school and um, eventually went into ministry. So uh, suffice it to say, it's just the <clears throat> reading of God's word in, in someone's hand completely redirected this young man's life and, as Jim just said, uh, other people's lives as well. So it's good to be a part of a ministry like that that literally gives out the word of God. So I encourage you, if you're interested in all in that at all, uh, do what Jim has asked with the material in your hand and then the online apps that he's uh, referenced to. And again, if you feel led before you leave front back, the offering plate <laughs> is out for uh, his ministry. All right, so thanks for coming. We're just tremendously encouraged by that and uh, pray that God would continue to bless that ministry. And then tonight I also want to remind you that uh, Walker Stone and his wife, uh, Joanna, are with us to uh, talk about the West Institute. <clears throat> I just met Walker and his dear wife last night. Um, but brother, it's evident to me you married up. And so, <laughs> yeah, your wife's just tremendous. Um, there are some young ladies I've encouraged to come your way uh, today or maybe at the snack tonight just to talk about uh, the West Institute that I think might be helpful for them. Again, West Institute is open to ma- male and female. It's not just guys. So uh, anyone can go there, and uh, I-, I think it would be a great encouragement. Um, he's going to come to snack, but that means what? He needs to know where it's at, and I have no idea where it's at. So somebody who's in the college ministry, okay, make sure that you guys connect and you get him in the right place, right? And so, uh, again, I said it this morning, I, I, I should get a royalty for the West uh, because I'm really high on the West Institute. I think it's a tremendous program, and I think you really should consider being a part of it if you can at all, uh, especially if you're young and not exactly sure where you're going before you start having a family and getting off into your career. I think it'd be a tremendous encouragement. Now, tonight, when it comes to the study of the Word of God on our own, uh, we just finished uh, Romans 15, uh, and uh, we're getting ready to go into Romans, or Romans 14, getting ready to go into Romans 15, and I knew that Jim was coming tonight, and then Kevin's going to preach for me next week in the evening, so I didn't want to start Romans 15 uh, uh, tonight, and so I thought it would be appropriate for us to stop and take a look at the issue of the Bible. Just the issue of the Bible itself. We haven't done that for a while. And so I thought it'd be helpful to do that tonight. So I've entitled tonight's sermon, The Bible, God's Word and Why We Believe It. The Bible, God's Word and Why We Believe It. Now, obviously, we put a very high value on the Word of God here. Uh, We're committed to it in all that we do. Every word, every phrase, every verse, uh, every chapter, every every book, we believe comes from uh, God himself. It is his word. And the only way that a person can know God and know God's will is through this one book that he's given to men. If you wanted to boil theology down to two bite-sized issues, 
Or if you wanted to ask, what are the two most important theological truths that all men need to know? I think they'd be this. Number one, Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world. And number two, the Bible is the only authority that comes from God himself. So Jesus is the only Savior, and the Bible is the one book that God has given to us. And in that one book that God has given to us, he's spoken exactly what he wants us to hear, exactly what he wants us to know and to understand. And God speaks clearly, and he doesn't stutter. God knows how to communicate, and all men are accountable to him. So we believe that the Bible alone is the true word of God. Therefore, God does not contradict himself on that word. Uh, he didn't write any other books uh, to have anything to say to men that has, uh, 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 does anything to say to men that has any eternal value or divine authority. He only has one revelation. All the other books out there that are trying to pass themselves off as the Word of God, such as the Quran or the Mormon or, or the Book of Mormon or the uh, Book of Science and Health written by Mary Baker Eddy um, uh, from the Christian Science Movement or any other writing supposedly coming from God are all, fabrica- all fabrications. They're all from the fallen minds of fallen men or from the demonic realm. They're all untrue. God has spoken, and he's spoken in one book, the Bible. It is the sole, divine, absolute authority. It's the Word of God, Holy Spirit authored. And it's the duty of every man to respond appropriately to this one book. And your response to this one book and your response uh, to uh, 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 the Word of God and what God requires in that one book determines your eternal destiny. No other book is like that. Nothing else is that way. What you do with the Bible determines where you'll spend eternity, either heaven or hell. And as we know, the Bible is not just one book. It's actually, in reality, 66 books that have been uh, put together over a span of about 1,500 years, somewhere from about 1405 B.C. to about 95 A.D., written in three different languages by 40 different authors, passed down to us 2,000 years later. Now, in our own church documents and under what we teach, and part of the doctrinal statement of Cornerstone Bible Church, under the heading of Holy, uh, the Holy Scripture, I thought it would be helpful just to remind you of what it says there. It says, we teach that the Bible is, the, is God's word, written revelation to man. Thus, 66 books of the Bible given to us by the Holy Spirit constitute the plenary, it just means all, uh, uh, in, in, uh, inspired in all parts equally, the plenary word of God. We teach that the word of God is, a, the, is an objective propositional revelation, verbally inspired in every word, absolutely inerrant in the original documents, infallible and God-breathed. We teach the literal grammatical historical interpretation of the scripture, which affirms the belief in the opening chapters of Genesis, present creation in a six literal days. We teach the Bible constitutes the only infallible rule of, of faith and practice. We teach that uh, God spoke in his written word by the process of dual authorship, that the Holy Spirit self-superintended the human authors, that they, through individual personalities and different styles of writing, they composed and recorded God's word to man without error in the whole or in part. We teach that whereas there may be several applications of any given passage of Scripture, there's but one true interpretation. The meaning of the Scripture is to be found as one diligently appeals or diligently applies the literal grammatical historical method of interpretation under the enlightenment of the Holy Scripture. So it is the responsibility of believers to ascertain carefully the true intent and the meaning of the Scripture, recognizing that the proper application is binding on all generations. Yet the truth of Scripture stands in judgment of men, never do men stand in judgment of it. Tremendously important conclusion. Scripture stands in judgment over men. Men don't have the ability, men don't have the uh, uh, capability of standing in judgment of the Word of God. It is the Word of God. It's true. So again, we take the Word of God seriously around here. Now, therefore, and so do many other people, but it's no surprise that men and devils have attacked the Word of God throughout its history relentlessly, assaulting it from a variety of different uh, directions. 
Wicked men claiming that the Bible has no authority over the life, that the Bible's not divine, uh, that there's no such person as God, to which the Scripture responds, the fool has said in his heart, there is what? There's no God. Now, if someone came along and challenged you to prove that the Bible is the Word of God, how would you do that? How would you do that? Well, there's a number of ways I guess you could do it. If somebody came along and challenged you how to prove that the Bible is the Word of God, you could probably look at science. Now, the, science, the Bible's not a science textbook, I understand that, but the Bible harmonizes with the facts of science to the issues to which it speaks. For example, the vast number of stars in our universe. Before the invention of the telescope in the 17th century, Hipparchus said there was 1,022 stars. But Ptolemy said, no, you miscounted, there's 1,056. Kepler said, no, there's 1,055. Today, scientists, again, after the invention of the telescope, scientists today tell us there's over 100 billion stars in our galaxy alone, in billions and billions of uncounted galaxies. So many stars, we can't count them. Innumerable as the sands of the sea, or, yeah, innumerable as the sands of the sea, but Jeremiah already knew that. Jeremiah 33, verse 22, as the host of heaven cannot be counted, can't count the stars. Jeremiah 31, 37 talks about the vastness of the universe. And again, it says, he says in Jeremiah 31, 37, it can't be measured. It's too big. Scientists have discovered in the recent centuries that stars are of different shapes, different temperatures, different types, different kinds of stars, different varieties of stars. And they've been busy cataloging the numerous types of stars. But listen to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 41. It says, there's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon. So he's saying, look, the, the, the moon's not like the sun. And then it goes on, it says, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars in glory. So again, there's uniqueness in stars, different kinds of stars, a variety of stars and types. Again, something scientists have recently discovered, something the Bible's already declared. Now, did you know that not too long ago, uh, scientists believed the moon was a luminous body, that it gave off its own light? But Job knew the true answer. Job 25, verse 5, Behold, even the moon, and it shineth not. Or, or the moon has no brightness in the New American Standard. And I think you know this one. Uh, the ancients used to believe the earth was what shape? Flat. They thought if you sailed far enough in one direction, you'd f- sail right off to the, uh, the abyss into nothingness. But listen to uh, Isaiah 40, verse 22. God is he who sits above the circle of the earth. The circle of the earth, is the word circle, sphere. Uh, Job, the oldest book in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, it, it says, uh, Job 38, verse 14, the earth is turned as clay to the seal, uh, uh, seal, S-E-L. Uh, um, so what, what does that mean? Well, it, it means it's referring to a small cylinder that the ancients used to use, and I just looked up a few of them this afternoon when I was kind of looking through my notes a bit, just on the internet, and, and you can see them. They used to take, they used to write on um, clay that was still soft, and they'd run it over the top of a, 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 of an impression that they were trying to put something on that seal. So they'd just roll it on the axis, right? And so what he, what he was saying, what Job is saying, was the earth is turned as clay to the seal. Job is saying the earth rotates on an axis, and Isaiah says the earth is what? Round. Not flat. Turns on the axis, it's round. God knows that wasn't until the 17th century that uh, Newton, when he uh, uh, 
uh, kind of finalized the gravitational laws. Yet Job, in Job 26, verse 7 says, that God stretches out the north over the empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. And now we know that when you see pictures from outer space, it's just hanging there. That's gravity. The suspension, the suspension of the earth in space. The Bible speaks to the hydrological system that waters the earth, where the water is carried up and dropped into the, into the ocean by evaporation, picked up, transported, and brought down again uh, as precipitation. But we take that for granted. We got that. Well, the world didn't know that until about the 17th century. They didn't have that understanding. But Isaiah, who wrote about 700 years before Christ, figured the whole thing out. Isaiah 55.10, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return without watering the earth, making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Ecclesiastes 1.6, the wind blows towards the south and turns towards the north, and the wind continues swirling around on its circular course. Uh, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, they flow again. So again, water runs into the sea uh, uh, from the rivers, and it never becomes full because there's this hydrological system, this hydrological sal- uh, uh, cycle that just keeps going around and around. Job 36, verse 27, he draws up and drops the water. They distill, uh, they distill rain from the midst, uh, which the clouds pour down. They drip upon man abundantly. Uh, again, uh, the, the Bible declares, the oldest book, Job, declares uh, the process of evaporation, transportation, and, and uh, uh, precipitation. Again, hydrological cycle wasn't understood by the moderns until about the 17th century. In 1903, there was a man named uh, uh, Herbert Spencer, and he died um, in 1903. But uh, he was a scientist who was heralded by the world for his groundbreaking achievements, groundbreaking uh, discover, uh, discoveries. And the greatest achievement that uh, Spencer uh, was a part of was categorizing everything in the world that exists in the universe into five categories. Time, force, action, space, matter. So Spencer said, look, everything in the universe falls into one of those five categories. Time, force, action, space, matter. And uh, the world acclaimed him as a genius. Listen to Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, it's time, God, that's force, created, that's action, the heavens, that's space, and the earth, that's matter. Back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So if you're trying to uh, prove the reliability of the Bible, I guess you could turn to science. If you wanted to try to prove the reliability of the Bible as the Word of God, you could maybe even look at the confirmation of archaeology. Because there's never been anything in the Bible that has been found to be historically inaccurate. The, the critics have often claimed that the writers of the Old Testament restored, or resorted to folklore in order to try to prove certain spiritual lessons. Uh, they said that er- everything that the authors were writing about in the Bible were made up uh, w- without historical confirmation. However, what's happened, in, especially about the last 150 years or so, there's been so many archaeological discoveries in, in uh, Egypt, Israel, Iraq, or ancient Babylon, or Syria, Assyria, uh, and they've all co- confirmed remarkably accurate the historical features of the Old Testament. Great numbers of persons and habits and periods of time have been illuminated by uh, uh, these discoveries. There's no shred of archaeological evidence that's yet been disproved that contradicts one word in the Bible. In fact, the discoveries of archaeologists uh, have put to shame the critics who once laughed at the, or scoffed at the Bible. For example, Ur of the Chaldees, uh, many, believe, uh, many believe that was a mythical city. Uh, obviously, in the Bible says it's the home of Abraham. 
Yet recent archaeological discoveries have unearthed great portions of the ancient city called Ur of the Chaldees. Critics thought the city called Petra was made up until they came across that uh, very city. Uh, critics scoffed at the story of Jericho and the fall of its wall until archaeological discoveries found the, uh, the remnants of the wall of Jericho uh, crumbled in such a strange configuration that it perfectly fit the biblical account that it fell outwardly flat. Critics laughed at the uh, biblical presentation of a people group called the Hittites until archaeological discoveries discovered the Hittite Empire and the civilization it was exactly as the Bible said it was. I mean, you could go on and on. Critics uh, uh, scoffed at the issue of uh, a person called Belshazzar until his name was written uh, on some tablets found again in ancient Babylon or modern Iraq, along with the names of his secretaries and sisters and father, uh, a man named Nabonidus, who was the co-regent with him in Babylon uh, when the city fell to King Cyrus. If you wanted to prove the Bible was true, someone says, well, you could probably look at prophecy. That might be helpful. And you can look at all the prophecies in the Bible that have come to pass, which means that someone who wrote the book knew something about the future, that he was able to predict the events before they came to pass. I looked up this afternoon just to get a number, and some people would estimate there's about 2,500 different prophecies in the Bible, and about 2,000 of them have been fulfilled already. And Jesus himself has fulfilled about 300 of them so far. Science confirms the Bible. Archaeology confirms the Bible. Prophecy confirms the Bible. Uh, confirms the Bible. Again, hundreds of predictions that have come to pass. Again, there must be somebody who wrote the book who knows what's going to happen in the future. And I referenced it this morning, but it's just a tremendous uh, a verse. It's not surprising God would say this in Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, there's no other. I am God, there's no one like me. Here it is, Isaiah 46, verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. If you wanted to prove the reliability, the validity of the Bible, wanted to prove that the Bible is the word of God, you could stop and look at life life uh, transforming events, just like our brother Jim just shared. This most wonderful book has transformed many people's lives. Because it's the Word of God that penetrates deep into the deepest part of the soul and, and transforms the heart. It's the Word of truth that men and women have found to be true in their life and, and sanctifies them, illuminates them to, in their path and gives them hope and motivates them to obedience as the Word purifies and protects and nourishes them and, and conforms them to the person of, uh, and to the image of the, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the powerful Word, same powerful Word that God used to speak the entire creation into existence is the same powerful word that gives new life to the human heart. First uh, Corinthians chapter six verse eleven. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, uh, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. It's the transforming, recreating power of the Word of God, the recreating of life. Uh, the Spirit of God again comes into the human heart and changes us. Second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's what? He's a new creation. He's a new creature, right? All things pass away, behold, new things have come. There's a story, and some of you might know this name, but an older pastor named Harry Ironside, Harry Ironside, and Harry Ironside tells this story. He was publicly preaching the gospel in San Francisco when an antagonist uh, uh, came out from the crowd and started shouting at him. And, and the antagonist said, atheism has done more from the, for the world than Christianity has. 
The atheist challenged uh, Ironside to a debate, which Dr. Ironside said this. He said, I'd be happy to debate you at this time, this hour, this place. But I have one thing that I want us both to do. I'll bring with me a hundred men and women who have been saved out of the gutter, out of darkness, out of despair of life, who've been lifted up in the brightness of God. I'm going to bring a hundred of them, and they will be here standing beside me tomorrow as we debate. And you, here's the challenge, you bring a hundred men and women who've been saved out of the gutter and darkness by the gospel of infidelity, right? By the lies of the untruth. Now, needless to say, the debate never took place. Um... Because the product of those lives have been so transformed by the Word of God is obviously seen where atheism has done nothing but continue to destroy men's lives. The gospel transforms the person from the inside out. The gospel has transformed millions and millions of people, millions and millions of lives, because it's the authentic Word of the living God. If you wanted to prove the Bible was true, I think you could probably, with, probably prove it with just one word, and that word I would suggest to you is Israel. All you have to do is look at the reality of the existence of the nation of Israel. I think the Bible speaks about the nation of Israel a little bit. I think the nation of Israel is in the news quite often. Paul says in Romans 11 that God has not rejected his people Israel. God says to the prophet Jeremiah that he loves the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. Thus says the Lord who gave sun for light by day and fixed order of the moon and the stars by light for night who stirs up the sea and the waves its waves roar the lord of hosts is his name if this fixed order departs from before me declares the lord then the offspring of israel shall also cease from being a nation from before me forever thus says the lord if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth can be uh, searched out below then i will cast off all the offspring of israel for all they have done declares the lord jeremiah chapter 31 35 through 37 Last time I looked, sun came up, and the moon came out. Cycles of the earth are still in existence, so I assume that God still has a love for the nation of Israel. Now I'd ask you a practical question. If you could give me a show of hands, how many people in the room have met an Amorite or a Canaanite or a Hittite or a Jebusite? Probably not many, but I'd pretty safe to assume that most of you have somewhere along the way in your life met an Israelite. Somebody from the nation of Israel. And in spite of all the satanic opposition to uh, this people group throughout her history, the nation of Israel not only exists today, but the nation of Israel is thriving. And again, that reality is evidence of the validity of the Bible. The world has known, shown nothing but hatred against the nation of Israel, but the fact that it still exists in spite of all the opposition, is because God has promised to preserve his people. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6 uh, says this, Israel, you are the chosen people of the Lord your God. There are many uh, nations on the earth, but he chose you only uh, to, to be uh, his very own. It's out of the CEV, the... Uh, um, uh, oh, I forgot the, the name of the translation, but just a modernized version, not the New Living Translation, but something along those lines, just a common English version. God made 27, 26 different promise, promises to the, uh, in the book of Genesis alone to the nation of Israel, the pr preservation of his special people, uh, probably uh, one of the more important ones in Genesis fifteen eighteen, 
It's the Abrahamic covenant where God promised that he give Israel their land forever because the Abrahamic covenant is an eternal covenant, an unconditional covenant, everlasting covenant that God made with the person of Abraham and his descendants. And the Bible teaches very straightforwardly that the nation of Israel is going to be preserved as a people and have a future in their land that has been promised to them by God. So another evidence, if you want to use that word, of the validity of the Bible, although the Jewish people have been persecuted throughout the entirety of their history, is their existence in the land. God promised that he would uh, disperse them uh, because of their disobedience, but then he promised that he would gather them uh, together from all four corners of the earth. That's Isaiah eleven eleven. And Israel's regathering uh, is more important, the Bible says, than their eclipse. It's that regathering is going to eclipse their exodus from Egypt. Uh, Je- Jeremiah 16, verse 14. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will no longer, uh, it will no longer be said as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the uh, countries where he had banished them, for I will restore them, here it is, to their own land, which I gave their fathers. See the same kind of words, same kind of prophecy in Ezekiel, Amos, Zechariah. Say almost exactly the same thing. Further, the Bible predicts exactly how this is going to take place. Isaiah 66, verse 7 says, Before she travailed, uh, she brought forth uh, uh, her pain. Uh, before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth uh, to a boy. Who has, who has heard such a thing? Uh, who has seen such a thing? Uh, can a land be born in one day? Uh, can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her son. So that's exactly what happened when God reestablished uh, the nation of Israel as a people group. World War I came, and World War I prepared the land for the Jewish people. The control of the land passed from the Turks to the Britain, to, to Britain. The Holocaust motivated uh, the Jews to return to the land. And then in May 1948, the nation of Israel was reestablished. May 14th, uh, 1948, Israel declared her independence. The nation was recognized and established in one day, as the prophecy back there in Isaiah 66 said. Very next morning, the nation was attacked. And her war for independence uh, has gone on ever, ever since. And it's exactly what the Bible said. There's going to be birth pangs coming after, after the birth. Right? Not just before, but after the birth. Because there's going to be a struggle for the nation of Israel because uh, Satan is at war with uh, God's people. So again, if you just wanted to use one word to prove the validity of the Bible, I would suggest that my word might be Israel. And these are great things. They're, they're encouraging truth, wonderful things to look at. There's another testimony that we probably should be aware of, of the, the validity of the Bible, that everything in the Bible says it's true, and that's the Bible itself, uh, the very word of God himself. What, what does the Bible say of itself? Or more importantly, what, is the G, what does Jesus Christ say of the Bible? What did Jesus Christ think of the Bible? What view did he have regarding the Scripture? Because you probably shouldn't have a lower view of uh, Scripture than Jesus Christ had uh, of, of the Bible. Now, Paul said this of Scripture. He says, uh, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And that word, you're familiar with it, the word inspired is theophanousis. It just means the, the God breathed out. Right? That, that's the very breath of God. So it's the God, the Scripture is the God breathed out word. The Bible is the breathed out word. When, when the Bible speaks, it's God speaking. So what view did Jesus have regarding the, the Scripture? Well, Jesus believed in the inspiration, the, the breathing out of the whole. He affirmed that the entire Old Testament was inspired by God. Every word, again, breathed out by God himself. 
Matthew uh, uh, 5, verse 17 and 18. Do not think, he says, that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not as the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now, again, the law and the prophets is just a, a common uh, phraseology designating the entire Old Testament. So Jesus says, look, not the smallest letter or stroke, the jot or tittle, as it says in the uh, authorized version, would pass from the law until heaven and earth pass away. E- and everything's going to be accomplished. So Christ was not only uh, uh, emphasizing the inspiration of the Old Testament, he's also emphasizing the authority of all of Scripture, the enduring authority of all of Scripture. He's affirming inerrancy, uh, the absolute authority of, uh, of, of the Old Testament, the Word of God. And he's doing it down to the very smallest stroke of the pen. Now Luke 24, verse 44, he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you. All these things are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, and they must be fulfilled. So all things that are written down about him in the, in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms have to be fulfilled. And, and, and those are uh, the, just the way that uh, Jesus uh, um, speaks the threefold designation of the Old Testament. So again, the disciples, initially, they don't understand the fact that the Messiah has to suffer and die, right? But all that was prophesied in the Old Testament, all that had to happen. And again, Jesus is affirming the entirety of the Old Testament, inspiration and authority of everything found in the Old Testament. So Jesus believed in the inspiration of the whole. He affirmed the entire Old Testament was the, the breathed out word of God. Not only that, but Jesus actually affirmed the parts. Jesus often quoted from the Old Testament, and his arguments hinged on the integrity of the passage that he was quoting. The method of argumentation affirmed the inspiration and authority of the individual parts uh, of the Old Testament. For example, often you'll uh, read, uh, it was written. In Matthew 4, don't, don't let me lose you here because I'm going to load a lot on you, but you'll be all right. Uh, in, in Matthew 4, uh, uh, he's arguing with Satan, uh, and Jesus quotes out of Deuteronomy 8, 3, Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, and verse uh, uh, 16. Matthew 21, after Jesus throws out all those who are buying and selling in the temple, he quotes from Isaiah 56, 7. In Matthew 26, 31, after eating the Passover and going out to the Mount of Olives, Jesus quotes out of Zechariah 13, verse 7. And then he tells the disciples that they're all going to forsake him and flee that very night. Mark 6, verse 7, there's a confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus again quotes out of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 29, 13, describing them as these people who honor him only with their lips or giving giving him lip service. Luke 7, verse 27, Jesus quotes out of Malachi 3 when he identifies John the Baptist as the forerunner to prepare the way for the Messiah. Luke chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus affirms certain lawyers' understanding of the Scripture when he quotes from both Deuteronomy 6, verse 5 and Leviticus 19, verse 18. In Luke 10, verse 28, Jesus quotes from Ezekiel 20, verse 11. In Luke 21, verse 20 to 24, he speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem. And then he, quote, he confirms the Old Testament prophecies found in Isaiah 63, 4, Daniel 9, 24 to 27, Hosea 9, 7. Luke 24, verse 46, Jesus quotes from Hosea 6, 2, when he's speaking about the, the suffering of the Christ. In John 6, verse 45, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 54, verse 13, when he speaks about the multitudes being taught by God himself. It is written. There's another term or another phrase that is often used where Jesus asks people the question, have you ever read? 
Matthew 12, verse 1 through 8. Jesus has a controversy with the Sabbath, over the Sabbath with the Pharisees. So he quotes or uses illustrations and or principles from the following. Exodus 31, Exodus 35, 1 Samuel 21, Leviticus 8, Leviticus 24, Numbers 28, 2 uh, Chronicles 6, Isaiah 66, Math, uh, Malachi 3, Hosea 6, Micah 6. In, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, Jesus quotes from the book of Genesis, chapters 1, chapters 5. In verse 5 of that chapter, he quotes out of Genesis chapter 2. In Matthew 21, he quotes out of uh, Psalm 118. In Matthew 22, uh, verse 32, quotes out of Exodus 3. You go, man, you have just absolutely buried us. I understand that. Here's the picture. Jesus quotes from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 1 Samuel, 2 Chronicles, Psalms, Isaiah, Daniel, Hosea, Micah, Zechariah, and Malachi. So when Jesus quotes from all of these Old Testament passages, Jesus is affirming the inspiration and the authority of the individual parts of the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 and following, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament book of Jonah, establishing the Jonah story and the great fish that swallowed him is not fiction, but it's what? Historical fact. Jesus believed in the inspiration of the whole. And Jesus believed in the inspiration of the words. Oftentimes when Jesus was defending truth about doctrine, he often argued out of the Old Testament referring to specific words that helped build his case. So if the very words are not inspired, then the whole argument falls apart. The whole argument's nullified. Matthew chapter 22, verse 32, there's a reference out of Exodus 3, verse 6 with reference to I am. Matthew twenty two forty four. there's a reference in Psalm, to a... Psalm 110, verse 1, as my Lord. And then in John 10, verse 34, there's a reference out of Psalm 82 having to do with God's. So Jesus believed in the inspiration of the entirety of the Old Testament. He believed in the inspiration of the words. He believed in the inspiration of the parts of the Old Testament Scripture. Jesus actually even believed in the inspiration of the very letters themselves. Jesus said that the letters themselves were inspired. For truly I say to you that heaven and earth will not pass away until the smallest letter is stroke her. And not, I truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. Now the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet looks like an apostrophe. You know, like you do a plural with a little... That's the smallest letter. Smallest stroke... Uh, 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 refers to the minute distinction between two Hebrew letters. Uh, uh, and, and it probably would be most understood in our uh, uh, understanding from a, sir, from a zero or from O, the letter O, and then the letter Q. You know, the O is like this and the Q's got that little like that. that that's the difference, the little tail. So Jesus is teaching, look, not only the inspiration of the entire, inspiration of the part, but it's an inspiration down to the very smallest stroke that everything is going to be fulfilled, down to the smallest smoke, uh, stroke of the pen. So again, Jesus believes in the inspiration of the whole, believes in the inspiration of the part, believes in the inspiration of the words, believes in the inspiration of the letters. And Jesus believed in the inspiration of the New Testament. And Jesus guarantees that the New Testament would be an accurate account of everything that the writers penned in the New Testament Scripture, even details that occurred years earlier. Right? How, how could people write and write details. 
John 14, verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, here it is, and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. How about the future? How about things to come? John 16, verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will disclose to you what is to come. Jesus believed that the entire New Testament was inspired, the inspired Word of God. He believed that the Old Testament was the inspired Word of God. The New Testament, the inspired Word of God. He said the various books, the precise words, the very letters were all inspired. Therefore, they're all authoritative. So anybody who holds to a lower view of inspiration uh, of the Scripture needs to reconsider their position and then just look at Jesus Christ and his attitude regarding the Scripture. It's unreasonable to hold a lower view of the Scripture than the person of Jesus Christ held. His view of the Bible should be the view that all believers hold. What about Paul? What was Paul's view of the Bible? Well, likewise, Paul believed in the inspiration of both the Old and New Testament. 1 Timothy 5, verse 18, Paul says, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wage. For the Scripture says, that's a quote from uh, Paul's using out of Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. And then he quotes out of the book of Luke 10, verse 7, the laborer is worthy of his wages. So Paul ascribes the status of Scripture to both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So Paul is saying the New Testament is as much inspired as the Old Testament. It's both the Word of God. He also believed in the inspiration of the words. I read it at the, at the top. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God. Profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So it's, again, inspired, literally God-breathed. Paul emphasized the original uh, Scripture as God-breathed. Again, that's consistent with what the Old Testament uh, prophets received. They received the message of God from the mouth of God, and, and they indicated that by writing, Thus saith the Lord. So the message given by the Old Testament prophet that was the message that was given to them by God. Therefore, just as the word was given to the Old Testament prophets as trustworthy and reliable and accurate, so is all Scripture trustworthy, reliable, and accurate. Because both communications come from the mouth of God himself. All Scripture in its original, or all Scripture has its origin with God, not man. So Paul would uh, affirm the plenary verbal uh, view of Scripture, all of it. Totality comes from, from God himself. Now, Scripture in, in the Greek is the word graphing, and Scripture is a technical term used by the New Testament writers. It's used about 51 times in the New Testament. Every one of those times the, the writer refers to or uses that word uh, Scripture, it's a reference back to the Old Testament, to the writings of the Old Testament. Everything, uh, uh, there's nothing outside of the can of the Old Testament Scripture when the New Testament writer uses that word Scripture. So he's referring back to the, to the, to the Old Testament. So he's saying, look, everything that belongs in the category of Scripture has its character of being God-breathed. It's the very Word of God himself. So Jesus believed in the inspiration of the Bible. Paul believed in the inspiration of the Bible. What about, what about Peter? What did people, Peter believe? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Peter says, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So again, Peter emphasizes the fact that Scripture is not the product of the human will or human willpower. Uh, rather, it's the product of the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. 
chapter nine or verse nineteen of that chapter, Second uh, Peter, uh, chapter one, verse nineteen. Uh, Paul, Peter identifies Scripture as the prophetic word. Verse twenty, he says, calls it the prophecy of Scripture. Verse twenty-one again, prophecy. So prophecy means to speak forth. It's the speaking forth of the mind and the counsel of God. And again, Peter emphasizes that the Scripture altogether they are reliable. Verse twenty-one, uh, Peter says, why Scripture is reliable because it has its origin with God Himself. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Yeah, this is the origin in God himself. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And the word moved in verse 21 means they were carried along. It's kind of like a stick in a stream that's carried along by the current. That's what he's saying. These men who wrote from God and wrote God's word, they were under the complete control of the person of the Holy Spirit, the, the direction of the Holy Spirit. They spoke the mind, the counsel of God. The Holy Spirit used those individual people with their, uh, uh, with their own uh, distinctive styles and educational abilities, uh, and he used their personalities as the writers of Scripture and, and ensured what they wrote down was all that God wanted them to say and to say perfectly. In fact, it's interesting that in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 16, Peter refers to Paul's writings, and, and he says that the, the false teachers distort the, uh, the the rest of scripture, but but Paul obviously doesn't. So what Peter's doing in second in Second Peter three verse sixteen, he's attributing Paul's writing into the category of scripture. Peter's showing, look, that he's aware that there's other writings out there uh, from Paul, uh, and, and he's going to classify under the power of the Holy Spirit, under the Word of God, that Paul's epistles are equal to Old Testament scripture. It's the Word of God. So again, it's evidence in the very early time of the church. All Paul's epistles were, all Paul's letters were considered to be God's written word. In the same sense as the Old Testament scripture was received. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 18, Paul quotes Jesus' words that are found again in Luke 10 verse 7. And he calls them scripture. So when you take both of these passages together, Peter and Paul, the two passages together indicate that during the time of the writing of the New Testament documents... There was an awareness that at that time, not now, but at that time, there were additions being made to the special category of writings called the Scripture. They had the characteristic of being the very Word of God. So again, all Scripture is God-breathed, and its words are the very words of God. So as you kind of look at the whole doctrine of uh, inspiration, it's that, uh, again, Jesus Christ comes and testifies that the, the, the Word of God, the entire Bible, various books, exact words, various letters themselves they're, as they're originally recorded, they're all the Word of God, the breathed out Word. Paul affirms the same thing. All scriptures God breathed. Men are just the passive recipients of the, of the Word, and, and God guides the process. Peter says the same thing. Men are carried along by the Holy Spirit, speaking forth the counsel in the mind of God. So again, this reality draws the attention to, I used the word just a little bit earlier, but verbal plenary inspiration of the Scripture. Plenary verbal inspiration just means the entire full, complete text of the Scripture. Plenary just means all of it, including the word, the, the words, verbal, uh, of the Bible, the product in the, the mind of God himself, his very breath. So again, the Bible is the product of the mind of God, expressed in human terms, in human conditions. But the big question probably needs to be, with all this proof, all this evidence, why is it that we believe the Bible and understand the Bible to be the Word of God, but others don't? And the simple answer to that question is why we understand and others don't, is they can't. Natural man can't understand things of the Spirit. 
The natural man can't understand the supernatural because of the supernatural is foolishness to him and because he's been blinded by the truth. Look, look at 1 Corinthians. You're, you're familiar with this, uh, but look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In verse 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But a natural man, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He can't understand them because they're spiritually discerned, spiritually appraised. I'm going to show you here in a moment why is that true, because they don't have the ability to understand it. Look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. Second Corinthians 4, verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the unbeliever cannot embrace the authority, the validity of the word of God because of their sin and because of Satan. On the other hand, we who do understand the Bible to be the authoritative word of God, we only understand that because of God's kindness to us, God's grace to us. He's opened our eyes so that we can see the truth. It's called the doctrine of illumination, the doctrine of illumination. And illumination is the last step of three important steps taken by God to communicate his word to mankind. The first step is revelation, where God speaks, right? The human author is moved. God speaks, that's revelation. The second step is inspiration. Again, men, God speaks and men write, right? God, God, through the Holy Spirit, guides and directs them to write down his message. So you have revelation, inspiration, and then the third step is illumination. And that's the process that God has provided for mankind to hear and understand God's revealed and inspired message, God's revealed inspired word. So illumination, in illumination, God causes the written revelation to be understood by the human heart. Because left to our own understanding and our own natural ways, the natural man can never come to confidence in the scripture. Why is it that you say something that makes so much sense to you and you share it with one of your loved ones and, and a relative and they go, makes no sense to me? It's because they can't. They can't. Illumination is God causing the written revelation to be understood to the human heart, to those who, whom he has called, to those who, who belong to him. For us, our understanding of the word of God is a gift given to us by the person of the Holy Spirit in order to believe the truth, to believe the gospel, to believe the truth concerning the person of Jesus Christ, to embrace the authority, sufficiency, the veracity of the word of God. Turn back to Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 5. Romans 8, verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Verse 7, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. 
So those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So in your flesh, you can't please God. As an unregenerate individual, you can't please God. You're hostile towards God. You're a rejecter of the truth because of the hardness of your heart. It's exactly what Paul says over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, uh, uh, therefore affirm, and I, uh, I say therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. So the unbeliever, the unregenerate individual, completely is unable to understand the Bible. Can't. Now, again, the only reason that you can understand the Bible, or I would understand the Bible, is that God in His kindness has illumined it to us. He's illumined His uh, truth to our mind to receive the truth. If you have confidence in the Bible as the Word of God, as Scripture as it is, it's because the Holy Spirit has given you that ability to understand it because the Holy Spirit dwells in you and He has convinced you that it is true. Look at verse 9, Romans 8, verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. So to trust in the Word of God is not a result of rational arguments, it's not a result of evidences, it's not the work of the human intellect. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in dwelling a person's heart. It's the regenerating work of God in our heart, in our lives. It's the regenerating work of God that brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. That takes the blinders off, the scales off, if you were, so that we can have an understanding of of God's truth, God's word. So if we really want to try to, quote-unquote, prove uh, the Bible to the unregenerate, we need to stop and realize that, first off, uh, amassing, quote-unquote, evidence isn't going to help them. It's not going to help their fallen intellects. It's not going to help the darkness of their own mind, the hardness of their own heart. The blinding activity of Satan won't allow them to evaluate the truth properly. Intellectual evidence is not going to give life back to the dead soul. Uh, Christian apologetics are very helpful for Christians. (laughs) all, all uh, All your apologetic books are helpful for you to encourage your faith, but they're not helpful to the unbeliever. Because it's not a matter of evidence. The issue is a matter of man's heart. It's a matter of being regenerated. It's a matter of being coming from death to life. It's a matter of being born again. And that's only something that God alone can do and something that God does in his mercy. So I would suggest instead of saying, well, prophecy has been fulfilled, uh, therefore the Bible is historically accurate, the Bible is scientifically accurate, miracles have uh, been performed, eyewitnesses of miracles, biblical uh, message of salvation transforms and changes life. Therefore, for these reasons, that's evidence that the Bible is true. Instead of saying it that way, I think you probably ought to flip it around and say this, the Bible is the word of God, period. And let me tell you what, my friend, you're accountable to it. And let me tell you this, Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world, and the Bible is the only authority from the Word of God himself. It's the only authoritative Word of God. Oh, and by the way, you're going to be held accountable to all of it, right? You're going to be held accountable to how you deal with both the Word of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, because the Bible is the Word of God, Prophecies have been fulfilled. Historical archaeological evidence is real and reliable. Miracles have taken place. Scientific statements are accurate. Lives have been transformed, etc. and so forth. 
We, we, have, we have understanding of the Word of God and believe it not by amassing evidence, but we have it because uh, the Holy Spirit has opened our minds to receive the truth. Fallen men, fallen intellects, hardened hearts, uh, judgment uh, of, uh, uh, or the activity, suppressing activity of Satan who's a liar. I won't allow the fallen man to understand that. And guess what? Men don't get to stand in judgment of the Word of God. You don't get that opportunity. It is what it is. You can take it or leave it. That's the reality. You don't get to stand in judgment of the Word of God. No man will do that. God's Word is true, and every man is what? A liar. And Satan is the father of lies. And the fool says in his heart there's no God, so I think we just need to declare the Word of God and let God do the convicting, converting work in a person's heart. So again, confidence for us comes by way of the, of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Therefore, we should, who understand his word, we should what? We should praise him, thank him, and worship him for giving us that ability. Now let me show you one last thing before we're done. Go, go to, back to 1 Corinthians. Right there at the beginning, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And let me show you how Paul methodologically worked this all out. And I think the methodology Paul uses is the one we need to embrace. If you're ever going to, quote-unquote, help rescue men and women from their futility of their thinking and their rebellion against God and his word in this pagan culture. Because, again, the unbeliever doesn't have the ability to understand the word of God because the whole thing is foolishness to him. Probably had to do things the way Paul did things. And we're just going to do a tremendously high flyover very quick through this material. But from about verse 18... 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, down through uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 5. The word wisdom or the word wise appears a number of times, about 20 times. And it's in a contrast to another word called foolishness, which appears about 12 times. So this is divine wisdom. Divine wisdom is going to be on display. It's going to explain why men uh, reject uh, the word of God. Therefore, they reject the word of God, they reject the gospel, reject the cross, reject the person of Jesus Christ. Because what the unbeliever always wants to do is he wants to elevate his own wisdom. And attempting to elevate his own wisdom, he wants to bring down God's wisdom. And this whole message, this whole understanding of this story about God becoming a man and dying on a cross and being raised in order to provide from the dead, in order to provide forgiveness of men and access to heaven, the whole thing from a worldly standpoint is utterly what? Ridiculous. It's foolish. Far too simple. Far too uh, humbling for the natural man to accept. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. He, he repeats it back in uh, verse 21. He says, God was well pleased through the foolish message preached. I see it again in verse 23. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and the Gentiles foolishness. So the word of the cross, that, that just means the gospel. It's foolishness to men. Uh, again, you see the same thing down in verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The unbeliever, it's the unbeliever, the word of God, the word of the cross, the scripture itself is foolishness. The word means moronic, stupid, pointless, unsuitable to human reason. Therefore, the unbelieving world treats the word of God with contempt and disdain. Because the crucified God is ridiculous to the Gentiles and even more so to the Jews. The whole thing seems unreasonable. The whole thing seems unbelievable to the unbeliever. But the truth is, the unbeliever, the non-believer can't believe the truth. Because again, he sees it as foolishness, as unreasonableness. But he also can't believe the truth because that's the way that God has ordained it. 
He can't believe the truth because that's the way God has ordained it. Again, verse 18, for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing. Apolumai means to being destroyed eternally. The word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Human wisdom cannot understand God. Human wisdom can't understand God. Human wisdom can't understand the word of God or the word of the cross. To those who are perishing, again, it's foolishness. The message is foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Again, God won't allow the human, the fallen human heart, the natural man who will not repent, will not humble himself, won't allow him to come in his own intellect. It's not coming in his own power. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I'll set aside. So again, men aren't coming to God in the power of their own intellect or the power of their own wisdom. The fall guaranteed that. The fall guaranteed that the human race cannot come to know God on their own in their own wisdom. They need what? Revelation. Right? God, again, designed it that men can't come on their own. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the cleverness of the clever I'll set aside. Where is the wise men? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Again, man on his own is not reaching up to find God. Man on his own is not going to come to God in his own human wisdom. Again, he needs revelation. He needs not only revelation, but he needs the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit to illuminate the truth to him. And again, for those in God's kindness who understand the truth, that's exactly what we're, where we're at. We're the recipients of God's kindness. God was well pleased through the foolish message preached to save those who believe. Just an act of God's kindness. Verse 22, indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So again, Paul's methodology into this unbelieving world was just very straightforward. Here's the, <laughs> I only have one sermon. We preach Christ crucified. That's it. No, no listing of evidences, no listing of uh, reasons to believe. Just a straight proclamation of the truth we preach christ crucified again verse 22 indeed jews asked for signs well jesus gave them some signs uh, when he was incarnate right the miraculous work and power he displayed but that's not what they were looking for the jews wanted their messiah to do away with the roman government and set up a kingdom and he didn't do that instead he died (laughs) that's not very conquering he died on a cross and again, from the Jewish perspective, those who died on a cross are cursed of God. Jesus does not fill, fulfill their missing expectations. The Jews are asking for signs, but the Greeks are searching for wisdom. Listen, the Greek world is not looking for a crucified carpenter from Galilee. The Greeks are looking for complicated, profound, complex philosophies. They're looking for fancy words, esoteric concepts. The the Greek culture just laughed at the simplicity of the gospel. They laughed at the idea of a crucified God that he should be worshipped. Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, the Gentiles foolishness, verse 24. But to those who are the called, it's actually, the word there is invited. It's like being invited to a banquet. 
to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, here it is, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. So we see the power and the grace and the wisdom of God, the love of God in the person of Jesus Christ because God has brought illumination to our spirit through the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit himself. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. The world looks at the Christian and says, these guys are not much to look at. Not much to look at. You know what? It's true, we're not. We're pretty unremarkable. Pretty unimpressive. Not wise, not many mighty, not many noble. We're just ordinary people saved by grace. Just sinners saved by grace. Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame things that are strong, the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man should boast before God. So again, the world looks at Christ, the world looks at Christianity, looks at the Bible, looks at Christians and say, you guys are just fools, utter fools, because they're blind to the message, blind to the truth. But again, we who believe, we are the recipients of God's grace and kindness because he's opened our minds to receive the truth. Verse 30. But by his doing, by God's doing, you who are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. So instead of trying to be impressive, instead of trying to convict or convert or convince the unbeliever by a list of arguments, proofs, evidence, etc., and so forth. Paul knew what a lot of believers today don't realize. Look, we don't have any power to raise the dead spiritually. We don't have any power. He knew that. He knew that he didn't have any power to raise the dead. He knew men were blind and sinned. They were under the power of uh, Satan himself who had blinded their minds to the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. They can't see the truth, can't understand the truth, can't know the truth. Unless the truth has been proclaimed and God in his kindness regenerates the unbelieving heart. So Paul says, look, I, I got one book, I got one message. I'm just going to straightforwardly proclaim it, unashamedly proclaim it, and point to the person of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come to you in superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For here it is, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My message and my preaching was not persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power that your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So if we want to help people come to an understanding of the knowledge of the truth, we better just start straightforwardly declaring the truth. We need to very straightforwardly just proclaim unapologetically the truth. Preach the word. Preach the cross. Preach the person of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the only hope that men have. The only hope that anyone has. And pray that along the way as you're presenting the truth that God in his kindness would open the heart, the mind of that dead sinner to receive the truth of the word of God and receive the person of Jesus Christ. Taking every opportunity we can to point people to the Bible. Uh, again, not making apologies, not making uh, uh, excuses, uh, just not presenting it. Just declare the truth. Because the Bible is the word of the living God, and all men are accountable to it. 
And God is going to judge all men by what they do with his son, the only Savior, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is going to judge all men by what they do with his word. And he's only getting, only written one book. And the reality is with both of those issues, heaven and hell are in the balance. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? It's the power of God unto salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and the Greek. So we shouldn't be ashamed of it either. Shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel, shouldn't be ashamed of the word of God. The gospel points to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, revealed through the word of the living God, and it's God's word, the gospel, the person of Jesus Christ, points to the person of Jesus Christ, that's salvation to everyone who believes. So we who know the truth, we are greatly what? Blessed. We're greatly blessed. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the tremendous blessing that you have given to us by illumination, illuminating the word of God to us in our hearts that we understand the truth. And we've come to know the truth, not because we're smart. We've come to know the truth because you're gracious, immensely gracious, and we're thankful for that. Thankful for our worship today and all that has uh, gone on in the morning and the evening, and we're thankful for the ministries of of Jim and Walker and his wife, and just pray, Lord, your blessing upon their ministry. Thank you for the word and the work of the Gideons that uh, goes out, and the word reaches literally the word of God being given out to men and women uh, with an opportunity to, to read and uh, uh, repent and place their faith in Christ. And then again for the West Institute, we just pray for that ministry, uh, that you would continue to draw men and women to that. You would raise them up and use them to honor you because you're worthy of honor, worthy of worship. Thank you for our day of worship. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.